This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Representative Cori Bush discusses her book, The Forerunner. She speaks about her life and advocacy work. The sexual assault that I experienced um, before, most of it happened around, it was like my early 20s, late teens, early 20s. It was when I was still like trying to, you know, find myself, quote unquote, um, and I blamed myself. I, I went through the next 20 years blaming myself. She's interviewed by HuffPost Editor-in-Chief Danielle Belton. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. You know, as a fellow St. Louisan, I've followed your political career, and you actually represent um, the district that I was raised in. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, like I am from Florissant. Yes, yes. I used to live in Florissant. (laughs) Yes, I I, have heard. So I'm just excited, and so let's just dig in. Okay. um, Talking to you about your new book, uh, The The Forerunner. So... I want to talk about this, the opening. So you go in really deep, really quickly um, with the book about some of the pain and the trauma that you've experienced in your life. What made you decide to open the book with what many could consider to be one of the worst experiences that you had had in your life up to that point? Yeah, you know, um, it's something that, you know, I still... Um, I'm still working through, but it's something also that affected me so, so deeply because, you know, the the sexual assault that I experienced um, before, most of it happened around, it was like my early 20s, late teens, early 20s. It was when I was still like trying to, you know, find myself, quote unquote, um, and I blamed myself. I, I went through the next 20 years blaming myself every single time that happened. Oh, it was because my shirt was cut short and my my uh, my shorts were really, really short. It was because I was out walking with friends when I met them and that, you know, and I was dressed a particular way. So that, you know, so that's why it happened. So when they took me out on the date, they just assumed that that's what I wanted or, you know, like I I made um, I, I, all of these excuses for what happened to me and all of the blame fell on me. Um, so when that happened a few years uh, um, back in 2016, um, how the book begins, uh, I was wearing scrubs. I had just come from work. You know, I um, I was, you know, and so I, I was over. I was 40 years old. You know, I had just turned 40, I believe. And, and it was, you know, it was just that mindset that, hey, like, I blamed myself because of all these things before, but this time those things weren't in play. And so it, it, so I've just been um, really trying to dig through that. And so it was important to start with that because that also happened right after my first run um, for office. And so it was, it was just so much as my life was changing and I was finally thinking I was getting, you know, my life together and moving forward and things were starting to make sense that, that just like, crashed everything all at once. Now, so much of the book, um, especially you're talking about your experience with sexual assault, both as a young woman and years later after your first run, I was really not, I I was saddened but not surprised because your experience is a lived experience of so many black women. Yes. um, Who have been touched by trauma and violence and abuse and sexual assault. Um, 
during the during the chapters that talk about your youth, you write quite a bit about how black women are sexualized at an early age, that that's what happened to you, and that you took a lot, as you said, you took on a lot of blame for yourself for why, you know, older men or boys were coming on to you so hard or reacting violently towards you. How did you get out to the other side? How did you come to the conclusion that these instances weren't your fault and that it wasn't about how you were dressed or how you were behaving at the time? This was really more about toxic behavior and about the actual men who perpetrated it. Yeah, I think that some of it came just from, uh, you know, over the last several years, uh, highlighting, you know, that, uh, you know, how prevalent sexual assault is, just the work of organizations and even... Um, you know, when uh, people have become public, you know, speaking out against, you know, people who are celebrities or, you know, um, politicians and just hearing just just that rallying cry that has that has um, been pushed forward. Um, those advocates speaking out that I believe her and then just really just just putting it in front of us more. Uh, but it wasn't until I went to therapy I went to therapy, you know, immediately following. I think the I think the following week or the week after I was um, in therapy um, at least one to two times a week. And uh, that's where I learned the most. And that's where my so my therapist started to dig through that to say, like, hey, why are you thinking, you know? And so she helped me to see that um, that I was holding on to it and how much I had internalized uh, everything that happened to me, even down to the cat calls. You know, I talk about uh, in the book, uh, you know, how this 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 older man, I was a teenager and he said, you know, if you're old enough to pee, you're old enough for me, you know, and uh, I like that was the mindset, you know, like that, that I would encounter a lot and not just me, my friends. So and it was just the usual regular thing. And now I understand that uh, that's not okay. And but where do we speak out against it? Like, how often do you hear that? spoken out against like, hey, that's not how you that's not how you talk to, uh, you know, to women and girls. That's not how you talk to anyone, actually. Uh, And so like turning it around. And that's one thing that I have I've I have tried to highlight, um, not in the book, but just in my work is, you know, where are the folks that are speaking out? Where are the, the men speaking to boys, you know, about, you know, where are the consent conversations? And those things have to happen. Yeah, and I'm glad that you talked about therapy because often in the African-American community, sometimes it can be taboo to talk about how you might need help and to seek help from a medical professional. Um, Did you struggle with some of that same mentality where you felt like somehow you were being weak or you weren't acting in the best way by seeking out help? Because often we're told not to seek help for these types of things. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I grew up in the church, you know, I grew up in the church. You know, I am a pastor, even though I'm not, you know, pastoring a church right now. Um, And so being, you know, a minister myself, I, um, you know, that was a that was a it was a fight for me, Um, especially when it was first brought to me like, hey, you need therapy. Um, And it was my friend that I talk about in the book um, by the name of Chris. It was him saying, hey, 
you are not yourself. You need therapy. And I know someone that can help you, that can help get you connected to this therapy. And uh, and he did all the work to get all of it set up and, you know, forget waiting lists like she needs this now. And that is that's how that's how that happened. But and so him pushing me, because if it wasn't for him pushing me, honestly, I would not have ever gone because I was having that battle. You know, it was OK. You need to go to church. Um, you need to go to church and um, and you need to pray about it. You need to ask the, the members. You need to ask the mothers, you know, reach out to this pastor friend, you know, and just have everybody pray for you, you know, and you'll be OK. But I did go to church and, and I remember I went to church one day and I was sitting in I was sitting in the church and they were talking about, you know, like, uh, oh, you know, God is going to bless you in 10 days. And like it was this whole thing happening and people were jumping up out of their seats. And, you know, and, and the person said, like, turn around three times and, you know, and then say this, you know, say these words. And those people were turning around and everybody was, ah, you know, and I'm sitting there in the midst of it bleeding on the, you know, on the inside, feeling like I was bleeding and I was about to lose it. And I couldn't believe why everybody was so happy and cheering and praising God around me, but nobody noticed me sitting in the midst of them hurting. And so I jumped up out of that, out of that uh, seat and ran out of the church. And I'll never forget. I ran out of the church and someone stopped me. I'm like, tears are just my face is wet and tears are just falling from me and I'm running out of the church and someone stopped me that was at the door and she said, Hey, wait, 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 stop. Have you signed up for the marriage ministry? And I'll never forget. I'm like, you still don't see me like my face is wet and I'm running. And so I ran out of there, ran down the parking lot and was trying to figure out how I could kill myself right there. Like I was sitting there thinking, okay, if I take my car and I go and I stop it at this point, right? As soon as I pull out the parking lot, it was a major street. Like I can die. The thing that stopped me was when I, I put my hands on the steering wheel to get ready to pull off. And there was this flash before me of the faces of my children. And it was the faces of my children, if they find them hearing that I was no longer here. And I couldn't bear that. And so that's what stopped me. That is an incredible, incredible story. I mean, I appreciate you sharing that level of detail. Um, It's something that I can definitely relate to. Um, I suffer from mental illness and your honesty about your mental health journey and the fact that you admitted that it took something, believing in something bigger, like your family basically, to hold you, to keep you as part of this earth, is tremendously insightful. Um, So I I appreciate you sharing that. Um, That is so, so honest. Um, I want to pivot a little to just talk about growing up in St. Louis. Um, Mm -hmm. The chapters about your childhood were so relatable to me Mm -hmm. as a little girl who also grew up in St. Louis in the 80s and 90s. Um, From like watching the Cosby show in a different world (laughs) to, you know, eating pizza and, you know, the types of music you listen to. You you talk about like doing a dance routine to Belle Biv DeVoe's Poison, which was like one of my favorite songs (laughs) as a kid that definitely got me to the dance floor. (laughs) But what I also found really touching and relatable was that your family taught you your history, which is, you know, with just black history and the richness 
of our culture yes. and our struggle uh, here in the United States. Can you tell me just a little bit about the impact your father had on you and wanting you to know your history? Yeah, so my dad for me, my dad for me was this strong man. You know, when I was when I was a kid, uh, you know, like I just I looked up to my dad as this like cool, um, uh, just kind of like, um, y- you know, he was very Afrocentric uh, in in his uh, in his uh, like just the way that he raised us, not necessarily not outwardly so much. So so like he wasn't like like wearing dashikis and stuff like that. It wasn't like an outward thing, but it was more just the way that he raised us and what he taught us inside the home. Uh, I'll never forget my dad wore a, an afro with a part on the side, it was a, but it was an afro, and he would keep his black fist uh, uh, pick in his head, and he wore that everywhere if he wasn't at work. Um, but, you know, we had pictures of, we had Jesse Jackson and Dr. King and um, the great kings and queens of Africa on the wall. We had all kinds of, you know, uh, the books on um, on black, you know, um, uh, black Americans and, uh, and, you know, and it wasn't the usual folks that you may hear about, you know, when we celebrate black history. Um, he took it deeper than that. It was like, you need to know, um, you need to know who, uh, 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 I remember him at one point teaching us about uh, Kwame Ture and teaching Mm -hmm. us about um, Fred Hampton. And so like those weren't names that we were hearing all the time. But um, time with dad, if we were going to watch TV, you were watching and and no joke, like eyes on the prize. Yes. You know, roots, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, so so story documentaries and stories that was our time with him but it but it meant so much i didn't realize it at the time because it it was you know i wanted to watch you know i, I wanted to watch mtv like that was the thing at the time i wanted to watch you know I, I i had other stuff that i you know that i wanted to watch tv shows and he but it for him it was no you don't need to look at those things this is what you need because you need to be able to you need we need to fortify you at home because when you go out there, there is a different world outside. But one thing that my dad taught me that I will never forget, and it has meant so much to me, two things, actually. One is that my black was beautiful. You know, he, my dad never made, my sister, um, we look so much alike, but my sister is light, she's light skinned, I'm dark skinned. Um, and, but my dad never made a difference. He never, we didn't, you would not have known that there were color difference. It's like my mom is a different shade than all of us. You would not have known that he taught me that my dark skin was still beautiful and to never hold my head down for anyone. But also he taught me every single day before we walked out of our home. Oh, and it drove us crazy as kids. But now I get it. He would say he would sit us down before we walked out the door and he would say responsibility, 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 responsibility. You are a leader. You will not be a follower. You, he said, but a good leader knows how to follow. And then you could walk outside the door. He would pray and then you can walk out the door. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Um, I had a very similar upbringing. Um, I watched so much of Eyes on the Prize. My father came home from work at McDonnell Douglas, which I think had been bought by Boeing by yeah. that point. He came home from work and said to me, oh, my God, you're going to turn into a militant. <laughs> 
right. But this was but this is what was encouraged in our house. The same thing, watching roots, knowing your history. Yeah. We had the Kings and Queens of Africa really? poster too. <laughs> yes. We had the same poster in our house. And I also felt the same pressure that you felt, you know, to succeed academically and to do well in school. But I want you to talk a little bit about how unpopular that was in the 80s and 90s in St. Louis as yeah. a young black woman. The fact that you were a bit more bookish and a bit on the more studious side didn't always work in your favor in trying to fit in. No, it was not. It was, it was um, you know... Being cute and, you know, wearing lip, being able to wear lip gloss, you know, color, you know, the mood color lip gloss and having having the uh, the latest guest jeans and, you know, polo clothes and all of that. Like that was the thing. It didn't it didn't matter if you were smart or not. Like none of that was on, like no people didn't care about that. Like in our like in our, you know, age group, it was mm-hmm. about the look, you know. Um, and so but for me, I wanted both. Like, I want to look this way because I like it, but I also loved books and I loved school. I loved knowledge and learning like that was my comfortable place. It was like I under it was like I could relate to the books for so I, I you know, I don't know how to best articulate that, but mm-hmm. I just felt like, you know, I needed to. Uh, uh, attain as much knowledge as I could and like one of my favorite things was vocabulary words learning vocabulary it was just it was a, it was its own uh class in elementary school and I loved it but um but it wasn't always you know it, it was more like being singled out though you know because in class it would be oh Corey answer this oh Corey well Corey knows that and it started to make me feel like you know, I just want to be like my friends, like don't single me out. Um, and then so it was like, I just want to be like everybody else. But um, but I still pushed on and and um, and excelled because I knew that that was what was expected of me as well from my parents, from both of my parents. Uh, and but if you couldn't be if you couldn't be also the 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 it girl my mom used to call it Miss Pop if you couldn't be the Miss <laughs> Pop you know then um, then your peers would necessarily see you exactly and you talked quite a bit in the book about when you started high school and the amount of like racialized bullying and um, hatred you often received from other students yeah. that was just seen as just part of school life as opposed to something that people felt compelled to actually do anything about. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was totally just unexpected. Like I I went to this school thinking that what I saw before me in like high school night, you know, and in you know, when we would have uh, students coming from other schools to come and talk to us about their schools, like all the 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 love and the you know the school pride, like that's what I thought that I was going to be walking into. Never once did it cross my mind what that I would endure something completely different, especially because most of the racism that I had seen was in the books. And in the the archival footage that I watched and and all of that, it wasn't because I was young, you know. And so by the time I got to to the point to where I was um, going to high school, I just didn't think that that was something I would see in high school, you know, because basically racism, it was almost like racism was over, 
you know, or or, you know, the part of it that was so overt, at least was over. But walking into this school, it was a completely different thing. And, you know, I just remember not understanding what was happening to me when the administrator, um, you know, I talk about in the book how I, you know, took my entrance exam and and uh, I took the entrance exam just like everyone else. We went into this big auditorium, all the freshmen, we took it together. And then when they called me back and said, you know, you need to come back and retest. I didn't understand. But when but I'll never forget, I walked into the school the day to retest and the administrator. I'm looking up at the at the administrator. I remember he was taller than me and he looked right at me and he said, we don't believe we, we believe that you cheated. We don't believe that you did this well on your own um, and um, and sent me back into that same huge auditorium to take it again by myself. You know, and then how how kind of like unnerved he was when I walked back out and they um, and they scored it. He said to me, you know, that I did better, you know. And so he was. But the way he said it, you could tell that he was a little pissed off, you know, Mm -hmm. so I got to stay number one um, in my class. And so just starting there, it was, you know, I didn't just feel isolated um, and. and just feel I didn't just feel that discrimination from my peers. I felt it from, you know, from staff. I felt it from yes. administrators. And what 14 I was 14. I had just turned 14. You know, um, what what kid should have to go through that? No, oh, I definitely agree. Um, as someone I went through. You predominantly went, you talk about going to Catholic and religious schools in St. Louis. I actually went to public schools. Um, in St. Louis and had similar experiences. Um, but what was the, probably what you just described was what was the hardest for me was when teachers didn't believe me or listen to me yes. because of my race and because I was specifically a young black girl. Yes. I would, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about how adults choosing to not believe you or question you when you like do well on a test and how that even trickles down to like your interactions with the healthcare industry as a young woman. Um, you talk in the book about you know ending up terminating uh, two pregnancies and the level of dismiss- dismissiveness and harshness you received from the medical professionals who worked with you. Um, if you could talk a little bit about what that does to a young black woman when you're repeatedly not believed and dismissed. Yeah, I think I think part of it goes back to, you know, even as, you know, as youth, we are seen or treated, you know, that us being over sexualized, it starts so early, you know, so and and then that whole like mother, uh, like uh, that matriarch uh, uh, and, and not matriarch in a respectful way necessarily, mm. but uh, but that whole idea of that 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 um, mammy type thing, yes. like we're we're seen so early as this grown woman, you know, even at a, as at fourteen, even at twelve, at ten, we're seen as basically a grown woman, uh, and 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 I think that that plays plays this part of. You know, I don't have to be soft with you or I don't have to treat you with dignity. I don't have to, you know, treat you like um, you are deserving of 
peace. You know, I can treat you like you are uh, this threat because and, and basically I think a lot of it comes down to the th- not knowing, not understanding, uh, not understanding the core of us. But, you know, as I got older, um, so so from that moment, I started to just really understand like things that I had heard in my childhood at school. Like, wait a minute. Oh, I remember kind of feeling this way when when this teacher said this. And now I realize that, you know, what that really was. Um, but and then, you know, years later, uh, not being just the whole idea, of not being believed, not being heard uh, you, or being treated like you you are automatically less than not less than me you're automatically less than us. Like that's the, that was the thing when I was in that abortion clinic and that the person that was supposed to counsel me instead of, you know, her speaking to someone that was in this situation that was really, really tough for her. Instead of looking at that, like this is a way for me to help this person, um, to help, uh, help give them whatever they need in this moment. They took it as the moment to to knock me down and back me into a corner to tell me, you know, how I wasn't enough and how I would never be enough. And um, and but the thing is, because when we are given the opportunity to shine or when we take by force, Mm -hmm. the opportunity to shine. Our brilliance is so amazing Mm -hmm. that I just feel that it just, it, it, people can't connect with understand, like understanding, like, you know, how is that? Because we look at, especially when we look at black women being, you know, the most educated group, you know, in this country. And then all the struggles that and hurdles that we have to get past, we have to be three and four times better at, at, at whatever we're working on in order to at least be considered um, average, you know, and for us to do do it even do things even greater um, is a testament to who we are. But it also falls, puts us into that that whole you got to be strong. You got to be the matriarch. You're the matriarch at 10. You know, it's um, it's really it, it, you know, but speaking out. Uh, hopefully will help future generations. I definitely hope so. I hope that when other black women read your memoir here, that they feel as seen as I felt seen reading Mm. it. And one of the parts in the earlier chapters that really resonated with me was how open and vulnerable you are about the relationships that you've had, Uh, particularly starting as, you know, as early as, you know, when you were in junior high and high school and of those first heartbreaks and of those first feelings of not being enough and feeling disrespected. Like you tell a story about your first boyfriend and how you were a cheerleader and how you would do a special jump whenever he would score because he was an athlete at your school. And then to find out that he was actually seeing another girl at the same time that he was seeing you and then feeling crushed and internalizing that as I'm not enough. Can you talk a little bit about how this feeling of I'm not enough was repeated over and over and over again, often in your relationships, especially with the long-term one that you had as a young woman with uh, the, the man Terrell, um, but that eventually developed into an abusive relationship. Yeah, I, so, um, you know, it's funny because at home, my father made a point and my mother made a point to make sure that I knew that my brother, that my sister, that we knew that we were enough, made a point. But, you know, but that was at home. 
So once we once you cross the threshold of your uh, of your house, then it was whatever the streets say, you know, and I think that is so I think that's where I was able to where it was started to be snatched from me a bit, especially because in school at that time, you know, if you were dark skinned and, and I don't really talk about this in the book, but if you were dark skinned, like you were you like you were the ugly ones like it mm-hmm. was all about light skin you know you know and shout out to my light skin you know uh you know family but uh but like it that was the thing you know you you know uh you have wavy ha- light skin with wavy hair was the thing that's where you know the guys wanted to date though they wanted to or they called those girls cute that's who they wanted to be their girlfriends and all of that and then for us dark skin ones you know we were the ones that the guys would just run up and just hit you on your behind you know but they didn't want to be your girlfriend because i mean be your boyfriend because you know they wanted the light skin so it was all of those pieces that just started to pull away at at you know my self esteem early, so that I started to believe that I wasn't enough. And so, with that being my very first boyfriend, um, and then with him doing that to me, and it just happened in a matter of months. It was so fast, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then I did so. There was nothing to combat that. Like there was nothing mm-hmm. to come at the same time when that was happening to come back and tell me like, no, you are enough. Like there was, that never happened. And so mm-hmm. then it was the next, the next guy who did the same thing. And then, so where is the peace that comes, that tells us, because people don't want to talk about you 12 years old, you got a boyfriend, you 14, you got a boyfriend. People try not to talk about that because, oh, you're too young. But, but mm-hmm. telling somebody they're too young doesn't stop it. So mm-hmm. do we put, do, are we putting measures in place for you to be able to talk about that heartbreak, to talk about what's actually happen, happening to them? Oh, totally. I mean, not to belabor the point, because there were lots of points, in, especially in the early chapters of this book, where I was just like, is she like actually just has a mirror into my life? Like, wow. how, how did we live such a similar life? Wow. Um, where you talked about um, the repeated times that the, the boyfriend that you were with, you know, got other women pregnant yeah. and was disrespectful and just really just he didn't show up for you. You know, like he didn't show up like to school dances and he just wasn't a real like loving caring boyfriend like you had pictured you know in the tv shows and the films that you had watched like yeah. sweet 16 like 16 candles and things like that and i related so much to that because i too um had a similar situation happen to me in high school where i was in love with a boy he never made me his girlfriend and then eventually he got some other girl pregnant after uh-huh. i went off to college and i was just devastated <sighs> It's completely heartbroken. But there was no one really to talk about it with because of the fact that when you're that young, like people don't want to talk about heartbreak with right. you and how it actually impacts you. Pretty much the only message you get as a black girl is just don't ever have sex. <laughs> yes, that's the message. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, just don't do it. <laughs> don't date. Don't look at a boy. Don't talk to a boy. Right. Like, just don't, don't do it. Because don't bring a baby home. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so... I really appreciated your honesty in these chapters, especially about the abuse that you suffered, because I feel like that happens to so many women, because um, we internalize the views that society imposes on us about our worth as black women. And we're told repeatedly that we're not worth as much, we're not as valued, we're not as loved. Yes. How have you countered that narrative um, as an adult in your life? You know, it... Some of it came from, well, a lot of it came from me finally 
um, you know, giving my life to Christ and then mm-hmm. learning, um, you know, just going to church, hearing the word, just getting just soaking into the word and just getting built up in who I am just as as a human being, you know, uh, and as a child of God, like that is what helped to that helped to, you know, like give me strength uh, as far as just like I'm worthy because I breathe, you know, type of mm-hmm. thing, like just just starting with that. Um, and so once that really um, uh, just healed um, certain parts of me, then I had to also contend with, OK, but what about because that, you know, but you're still this black woman, you know, mm-hmm. living in this in this world, um, raising a black daughter. So I had to then um soak myself into some stuff that I learned when I was in high school, actually. Um, I went to this amazing high school, um, Carnarita College Prep, and which is still amazing now, actually. Mm. Um, they have like, they got like 40, uh, I think it's like 40 um, black teachers at that school or something like that right now. Yeah, this, this is the school you attended after you left the school after, where the racist incidents that's, Yes, yes. It's an it's a all-black um, uh, college preparatory Catholic high school. Um, and, but they had this leadership class and in their leadership class, like you learned so much of your history. Like it was all about leadership, black excellence. Um, and so I, I went back to that, that I had learned about Angela Davis, you know, Mm -hmm. um, about uh, Asada Shakur, about so many, so many others about Shirley Chisholm and, you know, about Harriet Tubman. I went back to that and was able to see like myself in them a whole different way. Um, and so that has helped me over the years. But also, um, I kind of had to put it on the back burner for a while, like even caring about like how I was feeling um, and just my focus really turned to keeping my son alive and and, mm-hmm. and, and raising my daughter, keeping my daughter safe. Um, so it turned into that. And just so then that went for years, like just kind of like hyper focused on mm-hmm. on that. Um, and it, but it was through movement after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson in 2014. It was through movement building. It was through um, uh, uh, learning together that that we put so much back into one another. So it wasn't we're, as we're fighting for black lives, as we're as we're fighting to get accountability for every single person that lost their lives at the hands of police, as we're fighting for all of that, we were fighting for ourselves. And I was able to see like, hey, this is what you need because Ayanna Stanley Jones was a black girl, you mm-hmm. know, because Sandra Bland was a black woman, you know, like because we, you know, we gotta, um, you know, we gotta remember that um, that we can't get lost in this conversation. Like you got to be whole too. Exactly, exactly. And so this this pivots nicely into where I want to what I want to talk about next, which is about the Ferguson uprisings. Um, can you talk a little bit about our hometown and how segregated it is, and the history that St. Louis has with police violence? Yes. Just to give people some context as to why Ferguson happened the way that it did. Because often people don't realize St. Louis's long history of discrimination, racism, segregation, housing discrimination. If you could go into a little bit of that. Yeah, sure. So um, so St. Louis is um, you have St. Louis City mm-hmm. and then you have St. Louis County. So yes. you got, you know, it's like this is St. Louis City and this 
is all St. Louis County, you know, um, and then you have the river on the side of us. So um, uh, St. Louis is made up of, um, of course, like I said, St. Louis City, but then St. Louis County County has over 90 municipalities uh, within it. So all of 90, over 90 municipalities, somewhere around 92, 93. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them have their own governments. Many of them have their own police departments. Um, I remember back uh, during the protest when Michael Brown was killed, I lived only six minutes from where he was killed, but it, I traveled, I would travel through three municipalities to get to, um, to get to the protest. In that, in that six minute drive, if I had a broken tail light or, you know, something else wrong with my car that would flag if I had, you know, like a, something wrong with my windshield that would flag a police officer to stop me, um, I could get stopped in each one of those municipalities, which means I could have a ticket in each one. If I couldn't pay them, then I could have a warrant in each one, you know, and it was uh, so. But the but uh, through the years, us having issues, St. Louis having issues with um, policing, um, it's not a new thing. One of and, and one uh, one thing about that is there are two police unions. There is a police union that is uh, is majority white. I would I would say is probably or at least, yeah majority white police union. Then you have the a black police union called the Ethical Society of Police. Uh, so that tells you already a lot about what policing looks like in St. Louis. Um, but I, I grew up thinking that because in my neighborhood for such a long time, my dad was, you know, was in politics. So the police were coming to our home all the time. They came by, by once a week to drop off a letter to him. Um, and then uh, they just knew us in the neighborhood. We grew up with the police knowing who we who we were. But that was us in this little community of 5,000 people. Once you stepped outside of that, which I didn't do a lot of that without my parents, you know, at a young age, um, I didn't see a lot. But as I got older and spent more time with my friends outside of the community, that's when I really started to see um, policing being different because now I'm now I'm around other police officers that don't know me. Uh, And but but you were still made to feel like if someone was brutalized by the police, it was their fault. Like they automatically had to be doing something wrong. Like they they it was it was all of them. Uh, And then years later, um, I started to see my friends. Uh, that I knew and I like know these I know these folks, you know, I started to see them brutalized by the police. You know, they were getting um, shot at and all kinds of, you know, or getting stopped all the time, sitting on the side of the road like I would see so much. And it's like they weren't doing anything. And so that's when my mind started to see that's when my mind started to shift and I um, started to wake up just a little bit. So. You were also abused by the police during the Ferguson protest during the year um, that there were so many Black Lives Matter protests that spread across the country yes. uh, after what happened to Mike Brown and what unfolded in Ferguson. Um, if you could just talk a little bit about how that experience personally impacted you, but also talk about it within the context of St. Louis's history, of St. Louis's often racist history, yeah. um, against uh, any type of protest. You know, I often tell people 
that growing up, I, I never saw anything like what happened in Ferguson the entire time I lived in St. Louis as a young woman. Right. Um, and my parents before me had never seen anything like that before. Um, if you could kind of put all that into some context. Yeah. Um, so it was um, by the time um, that incident happened when I was um, brutalized by the police, so we had been protesting. Uh, Michael Brown was killed August the 9th, 2014. This was November 24th um, when this happened. We were we had been waiting um, to find out if um, if the Ferguson police officer who killed Michael Brown, um, Darren Wilson, if he would be um, indicted. And we knew that this this answer was going to be. Uh, be it was either going to cause like widespread protests or it was going to, um, uh, you know, maybe just finally give us and the families some, you know, type of, you know, uh, relief in like maybe things are starting to change. So we prepared for it. Um, and uh, that night I decided uh, not to just be out there as the protester um, because I knew that there would be so many people from all over the world that would be there that had never experienced tear gas before. So I had all of my stuff. I had a book bag full of, you know, just all types of, um, you know, uh, medical supplies and everything, Mm -hmm. even a hazmat suit. It was just a bunch of stuff in this bag. Um, And anyway, um, um, I, I remember just feeling like, like I need to take care of whoever needs help out here. And then when the opportunity, when, when that, when it came time to actually help someone, I remember initially I didn't want to help them because I thought it was an ambush. We had dealt mm-hmm. with that before many times where someone would like call your name out or try to lure you into an area and and um, things like would happen. And so I just didn't. So I just didn't think that it was real. Um, but um, but helping some helping this woman and it's, it's it's in the book, but helping this woman that I thought was having a heart attack, her 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 daughter thought she was having a heart attack. The people around her thought she was having a heart attack as I was standing up trying to standing for this woman, trying to help her. You know, I just remember not realizing that not knowing that the police had picked me up and threw me in the air. I just was I remember saying to the police, yelling at the police officer, I'm a nurse and I'm trying to help her her. her. I need a paramedic. You are not skilled to help her. I think she's having a heart attack. Can you get me the paramedics who were behind them, literally right behind them? Um, I could, I'm looking at the, the ambulance. Would you get them? And I said, I'm a nurse. I'm just trying to help her. And um, next thing I knew, I saw stars. I saw the night sky and stars. And I couldn't, and I just remember wondering, why do I see stars? I didn't feel the lift. Um, and then I realized when I started to come back down, like the gravity, I'm like, wait a minute, stars. Oh, my God, I'm in the air. And then I started to come back down. Um, and I just remember the impact. I started to see the ground coming towards me and there was nothing I could do but brace for the impact. Um, and then when I hit the ground, just me just going from one side to the other because I'm being kicked um, by this these police officers, well, I'm going to say police officers, by law enforcement. Um, mm-hmm. And then they tear gassed us while I was still on the ground. And, and Lisa, um, I believe is her name, she was 
um, she had to be right there on the ground next to me. Um, it was, but the fact that when I told that story afterwards, I was most often told, well, you shouldn't have been there. Mm. You shouldn't have been. That was your fault. You know, the stuff that we heard out there on the ground. Oh, you're a terrorist. Go get a job. Uh, all of those things. And and when we would talk to the police, even out there on that front line, we would talk to the police and say, hey, why won't you listen to us? Why won't you do anything like, you know, why? Why are you standing for this? Why are you standing for how um, protesters are being brutalized out here? Why are you you know, and what we would hear was it's a job. So and I don't want to lose my job. This is how I take care of my family and I have to keep my head low. So the fact that they that we heard from officers that it's because of who is the higher up. Mm-hmm. Not that I agree with this. And that is one of the his that is part of that history that we have in St. Louis is the leadership. Yes. And so that's that training. It teaches you to keep your mouth closed if you want to keep this job. Exactly, exactly. And so one of the things that I was struck by in hearing your story, you know, um, you've been a victim of police violence. You've been a victim of domestic violence. You've been a victim of assault. You've dealt with so much insurmountable, in some cases, like very debilitating racism towards you. You've dealt with medical racism. You've lived in your car at one point. You've dealt with being under housed. And I thought, what more perfect person to run for Congress? Like she has experienced everything that is about how our government often fails us. Yet when you decided that you wanted to first run initially for the Senate, you had some pushback from other protesters and other organizers in the St. Louis community. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was um, and it came out of left field, you know, for me, just as it did for them. So I know they were probably I know it was probably tough for them because we had been, you know, we had been angry at local politicians saying, hey, why? Why weren't you out there with us? You know, while while it was while we were out there protesting, why aren't you out here? You know, so to so to then for me to run, you know, I know that it seemed to some of them like you're just trying to become one of them. Now you just want to get, you know, you just want to become some, you know, celebrity. Uh, And um, but and so it was hard for me because I was like, you, yeah. You all know me like, you know what my character is. You know my history. You know who I am. Why would you think that I was trying to become something other than somebody that's actually trying to change this community? Um, Mm -hmm. And um, so that was it was it was tough. You know, the first that first run, we didn't have a lot. There were a few that supported us um, and and uh, um, and was with us. But for the most part, many were not. I even had some come to me and say, you know, I can't believe you're doing this. Like we don't do electoral politics. And it, mm-hmm. that was tough, you know, um, but but uh, when people started to see how much not only me, but there were two other um, activists who ran that were from the Ferguson uprising, Bruce Franks, Jr., who ran for a mm-hmm. state rep seat in one and um, also uh, Rasheen Aldridge, um, uh, who later took over Bruce Franks seat. Um they, you know, just seeing that uh, we held to our values, we held to the reason why we ran, the reasons why we ran, and we were able to at least affect change locally, you know, and even for me on in some ways on a, on a national scale, because Bernie Sanders, you know, did, uh, you know, open up 
opened up some doors for me. Um, I uh, people were able to see, wait a minute, you're right, because the people who vote or people who write these bills, they can come from your community. They can be like mm-hmm. you and be, be, you know, and, and, and support the things and advocate for the things that that um, the community actually wants and needs. Um, so that started to turn turn the tide. Yeah. And it's just like to me, it made sense. You know, you talk in the book about your father's past political ties and how and his um, how active he was in the community and the impact that had on you. Um, and so to me, it was like when you started talking about both starting your own ministry in the book and then later getting involved in the protest movement out of Ferguson, like this just seemed like a natural extension of your efforts to try to make the world a better place, not mm-hmm. just for St. Louisans as a whole, yeah. but for women and girls like you, who look like you, who had similar experiences to you of your own, that you wanted to basically represent the people. Um, So that really struck me. But you are up against quite the machine. Um, Since, as we have already discussed, we're both from St. Louis. (laughs) and You're actually um, my father's representative. Oh, my gosh. Um, Yes. (laughs) Hi, Dad. So so you were up against... Uh, William Lacey Clay, mm-hmm. um, who was a legacy. Uh, he's the son of Bill Clay, who was the representative for St. Louis for a very long time. He's a, one of the founding members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the machine that you had to go up against as a grassroots organizer? Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, so it was... It, so, first of all, I had no desire to run for office again um, I was still recovering. I was still in treatment um, after the sexual assault. So the sexual assault happened January 6, 2014. I mean, January 6, Lord, that's a, that's a whole other situation. Um, it happened um, uh, September 6, 2014. And uh, so the next four months, I was in deep therapy. I had not gone back to work because I couldn't work yet. Um, I was struggling, you know, just struggling just to be well at that time. And um, that January, when I decided, okay, I'm, my job was like, hey, we can't give you any more time. You're going to have to come back to work. I was trying to figure it all out. Um, then uh, a few people from the community came to me, people that weren't necessarily talking to one another, came to me and said, hey, we really want you to run for this seat. And I was just like, why? Like, I, you know, I'm still trying to get well. and um, But um, I realized that Um, through all that I had gone through with my rape kit sitting on a shelf for several months um, with my uh, with me not getting any type of justice without there being any type of accountability. I couldn't even get an order of protection against the person who assaulted me. Um, So just thinking about that and I was thinking about like how many others go through this and have no advocate like how like how do we highlight those things? How do we how do we get help for victims of sexual assault? How we you know what can I do? And that was that was one of those things. But when I also thought about my son and my daughter like do I like have I accomplished the goal did I accomplish the goal the last time like if something happens to them like will I then say oh you could have done more you know and so I said you know what I'm just going to go I'm just going to run and you know I'll get continue to get help as I'm running but what people would say when I first started saying that I was running um so first thing was I knew my dad's connection to the Clay family my dad Mm -hmm. had worked for both Clays you know helped help both of them on their campaigns 
I worked on their campaigns as a kid, not not um, the the father, but the son. Um, and so I knew the connections my dad has talked about in um, the Senior Clay's book. Uh, we So there was this family connection. There, there are pictures with us together. Mm. I knew that that would that that may be an issue for my dad. Um, but I knew what I had to do. So um, once I once the Lord gave me the like, go ahead. I knew I had to go, do this, um, make this run. But uh, what people would say is, first of all, the biggest thing that kept being tossed at me was you're a black woman. Why are you going to run against a black man? Like mm-hmm. where are you supposed to be supporting him, not running against him? And my thing was, where is the support for regular people, regular everyday people like me? Where has that support been? Why did I have to go? What, why was my life about you know, always struggling, you know, like who fights for us, who, who I, I'm going to the payday lender because because I can't afford to take care of my kids without having, you know, without taking out a loan all the time. And, you know, childcare is way too expensive for me to be able to, you know, I'm working just to pay childcare. And I, you know, who speaks for us? And so I was I talked a lot about that and people were just like, Mm-mm. yeah, you can't you're a black woman. You can't do this one. Um, and uh, one of the things also was like his dad, people talked about what his dad, you know, um, you know, broke this glass ceiling. His dad was the first, you know, black, you know, congressman um, in uh, in the district. Uh, and so in the St. Louis area. So like, how can you why would you mess up that legacy? Like you should be standing for the legacy. And I was like, um, I, you know, it, it we have to be people over legacy. It can't, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was that was a big thing. Um and so it took that first run for me to really help people to see that this was not about a black woman running against a black man. It had nothing to do with that. It was just me wanting um, for those that have felt left out and neglected and underrepresented to finally have some representation. And so it was but that was there was money. You know, it was a lot of money. I wasn't able to really raise money. So it was money. And, you know, it was the machine of everybody in place. All of these, you know, um, whether it was uh, politicians, business leaders, community leaders, like, you know, all of these folks were still like, you know what, even if I like you, I'm not going to go against the machine because it'll hurt me if you don't win. Mm. Speaking of the machine. When you were talking about this, it made me think a lot about how in your book you talk about how you and other Ferguson protesters were treated by establishment types. Yeah. Uh, more prominent ministers, more prominent organizers who basically came in and told you guys that you didn't know what you were doing. Right. <laughs> that right. your movement work wasn't authentic movement work, that you weren't doing things the right way. And I imagine you got some of that same feedback on the campaign trail yeah. when you're running against uh, William Lacey Clay, um, because you are someone who's actually of the community and you are gra- truly grassroots and that you have experienced a lot of the things that your constituents are concerned about. So tell me a bit, a little bit about what it was like trying to counter this narrative that Ferguson protesters are disorganized and not fit to actually be leaders. Yeah, it was... Whew, we heard that so much. Um, oh, you are a leaderless movement, you know. Mm. Um, and it just always made me, every time I heard that, it would just make me think about like, you know, it would take me back to the Bible. And I'm like, you know, if you take out, if you take out the king, 
you know, or like looking at David and Goliath, you know, mm. David took out Goliath and what happened? You know, mm. you know, you can't like, so if, if there's only one, if there's only one head, if, uh, you know, if, you know, then that could cause a whole movement to, to, to fall apart, you know, but for us, we had a leader full movement because we all had something that, that was our thing. And that when we brought those things together, it, we had this full movement. And if they took out one, our movement still kept going. So that was the amazing thing about what we were able to do. So the, the Ferguson uprising withstood more than 400 days of constant protest. You know, and so so to call us leaderless, you know, did we make did we do everything the way people thought we should do? No. But I also, I would ask people, where is the playbook? Like, where was the playbook? Where was the instruction manual? That, and why didn't you give us the instruction manual before it happened? Since you know all the things, why didn't you let us know? Like, hey, if this happens, this is what you do. You know, we had been, many of us had been to, like, um, boycott. Like, it was, uh, was it boycott uh, uh, Dillard's. And, like, it was just, like, things locally in the community. We had gone to those, to some of some of those actions. But... Um, and the boycott dealers, I believe, was way it was when I was small. So but mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, so we had seen we had been a part of some of that. But this was something different. This was our own like this was, you know, this was us like it happened to somebody, you know, during our time where that body laid on the ground uncovered for almost four and a half hours, you know, in our community. And to tell us that this is how we should behave, you know, and, and what was what was also said was um, some folks really felt like you're telling us how to behave. You're telling us what we should do. But I don't know you. Mm -hmm. I've never met you. So why weren't you in the community with us before? You know, because then maybe we could look at you and, and, and hear what you're saying. But now you're coming out, making yourself to be this big person when we've never met you before. You, you're no greater than I am. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Representative Bush, I truly believe that you have demonstrated what the true qualities are needed for a leader. Mm -hmm. That so many other activists that were involved in the protest movement out of Ferguson show that you guys had a movement that may have appeared leaderless, but was actually quite leaderful. Yes. And it's amazing, amazing that you took that experience and managed to create something wonderful out of it by representing uh, your district. And so I want to thank you, thank you for this book and for this great conversation today, which I hope was really illuminating for those listening. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 